Every five years, the Chinese Communist Party, the party that rules China's single-party system, holds a national congress, during which rearrangements to the country's leadership are announced and changes to the party's constitution are also made public. These events tend to be pretty well orchestrated ahead of time, more like an Apple product announcement than a democratic event during which things are actually decided and hashed out in real time in public. But they are also widely watched, in part because Chinese citizens want to know where their country is headed next, but also because there's a fair bit of obscurity and opacity in the upper echelons of Chinese leadership, to the point where there's a good amount of Kremlinology-style interpretation surrounding every last detail of these events by the international community. Who stands next to whom? in what order people are announced, the ages of the people involved, where they come from, things they've said in the past, the music and colors and specific words used. All of it is analyzed as a potential signal as to what might happen next, who the world will be dealing with, what their policies will be, and so on. This year's Congress was substantially less mysterious than those of previous years, though, because the question of who would be named chairman, who would lead the Communist Party, and consequently, the country, was more or less foreordained. Xi Jinping has been the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party and the President of China since 2012 and 2013, respectively. Xi has since consolidated power around himself, by all indications recalibrating the party and the government to orient around his goals and continued place at the top of the local power pyramid. And this Congress, as a consequence, was largely seen as a groundbreaking event only in that it would be announced that Xi would be given a third term in office, which isn't something that's happened in China since Mao back in the mid-20th century. The revolutionary founder of the modern Chinese government, who was the leader of the country for only five years, but who led the Communist Party from 1943 until 1976. Everyone since Mao has been limited to two terms as leader of the party and the country, so Xi's becoming a third-termer is a pretty big historical deal. Beyond that historical turn of events, though, the rest of this half-decade Congress was pretty by the book and as anticipated. China will try to reunify, in their words, with Taiwan, peacefully, but reserves the right to do so militarily, if necessary. China will continue to face international challenges head-on and won't shy away from political, economic, or military confrontations with those who might try to prevent their growth and diplomatic ascension. China will stick with Xi's COVID-zero approach to dealing with the pandemic, despite the economic and social issues this approach has sparked in the country and globally. And China will strengthen its resolve to deal with impending and ongoing hardships. All things you might expect to hear, with minor variations in any country around the world. The COVID-zero thing is a very Chinese-specific approach at this point, but it's of a kind with other leaders' declarations, because it basically just means, I'm going to keep doing what I've been doing even if you don't like it, so deal with it. It also means Xi's views on Chinese purity, related to things like pornography, video games, homosexuality, online shopping, and other issues and industries that he personally believes weaken the country, will remain steadfast. He's going to keep reshaping the country in his image and has been given the Chinese leadership's approval to do so. So no real surprises, but that lack of surprise is in some ways a bit surprising. 
because although Xi is generally considered to be a fairly canny politician and has skillfully realigned the country with his vision, using all the tools available in an authoritarian country to do so, things are also not looking super great there right at this moment compared to previous years. Over the past several decades, China has pulled something like 800 million Chinese citizens out of poverty, which is a stunning and positive accomplishment. It has also grown economically very rapidly. It hit 8.1% growth in 2021 and was expected to expand by about 5.5% this year, which is still pretty solid considering all the economic headwinds that they've been facing alongside the rest of the world's economies. But new projections suggest they might, if they're lucky, hit closer to 3%, and a collapsing housing market, which accounts for as much as 30% of China's GDP, combined with near-constant shutdowns of manufacturing and commercial hubs due to that COVID-0 policy, have apparently dropped growth low enough that the country's leadership doesn't want the real number to be made public. They stunned the international community by delaying the release of key economic figures during the event, and as of the day I'm recording this at least, a new release date hasn't been announced. It's suspected that the first half of 2022 was pretty grim, and they're hoping the new third quarter numbers will boost an otherwise grisly set of figures before they make those figures public. There's also been some diplomatic issues resulting from Xi's decision to announce a potentially limitless alliance with Russian President Putin mere months before the latter decided to invade Ukraine. Something that Chinese leadership apparently has not been thrilled about, though they maybe would have been less irked had the invasion gone as Russian leaders initially planned. But that's also served to drag on Chinese economic and diplomatic fortunes, as have ongoing and increasingly varied minor and medium-scale sanctions against Chinese products. Some of the standard variety, some predicated on the theorized military potential of Chinese electronics, and some based on external factors that just happen to stick to China, alongside other nations like Russia. What I'd like to talk about today, though, is a recent export curb by the United States government targeted at Chinese entities that has been called by some a declaration of economic war, and which many analysts and industry experts think will severely impede China's ability to achieve some of their more lofty economic, technological, and military aspirations. <music> You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Reuters, and it's entitled, China Faces Its Sputnik Moment as U.S. Export Curbs Deal a Blow to Its Chip Ambitions. The general plot of the Chinese science fiction novel The Three-Body Problem, which is just a wonderful read if you're looking for some good fiction, by the way. But the general plot is that there's an alien species we become aware of, they become aware of us, and for reasons I won't get into to avoid any serious spoilers, they start heading our way. But it will be generations before they arrive at Earth. Now again, I don't want to give away too much, but part of what's interesting about this book and the concepts it explores is what conflict looks like across those sorts of distances, and when the parties involved are at vastly different places in terms of technological development. 
And one trick used by the more advanced aliens against humanity in this book is to mess with our ability to develop fundamental physics, to do science at the most basic level, because that in turn impedes our ability to develop new materials, new theories about energy, all sorts of things. Our core capacity to move up the ladder in terms of discoveries and in the application of those discoveries, turning them into technology is thus impeded because of our ability to do fundamental research and iteratively evolve our knowledge and know-how is hobbled. I bring this up because there's a bit of a parallel here in what the United States government seems to be trying to accomplish with a recently announced set of regulations related to chip tech exports to China. In early October of 2022, the U.S. Biden administration announced a new set of export controls meant to keep China from acquiring advanced semiconductors or the ability to make their own. The U.S. makes a lot of these chips, makes the machines that make them, and owns a lot of patents, directly and indirectly through U.S.-based companies, that shape the ability of various entities to produce or even know about the highest-end components in this field. In addition, the stuff the U.S. doesn't directly control tends to be controlled by U.S. allies. These newly announced measures require that entities operating in this space, everything from the companies that make finished high-end chips like Intel, all the way to folks who make the tools used to produce said chips, like Applied Materials Incorporated and KLA Core, and those who produce chips for other entities like TSMC, can no longer ship their goods to Chinese-owned factories or electronics companies, including those like Huawei, which have been shown to be directly integrated with the Chinese military and government, but also seemingly less connected, but still very Chinese-based companies like drone maker DJI. They also require that Americans working at semiconductor or related companies connected to the Chinese government either quit or lose their American citizenship. As a consequence, essentially overnight, Chinese chip and other technology companies have lost a significant portion of their research and production-oriented talent and capabilities, hobbling them in many short and long-term ways. The general theory of this move is that semiconductors and the ability of a country and its research and development entities to access high-end semiconductors directly influences their capacity to produce advanced technology. Everything from supercomputers to military hardware and their ability to develop next-step technologies like advanced artificial intelligence software and autonomous vehicles and high-end hardware fabrication equipment. You name it, it all depends to varying degrees on their ability to acquire advanced chips or make their own. And all of those things in turn go on to influence the scope and scale and sophistication of their consumer devices industries, but also their military capacity. We have seen a version of this type of chip drought play out already in Russia, which hasn't been able to access above-ground markets, only slower, more expensive, underground black market options for advanced chips since shortly after they invaded Ukraine. This in turn has made it tricky for them to produce new tanks and other military hardware. There have been reports that they've had to cannibalize washing machines for their non-advanced chips just to keep some of their military vehicles functioning, and they haven't been able to produce any new military hardware for the same reason. And this also keeps them from producing higher-end consumer electronics and other nice-to-have things that keep an economy beyond the battlefront ticking along as a government might want it to tick along. 
This version, being applied against China, is meant to accomplish something of the same, but rather than attempting to force the target to stop going to war with a neighbor, it's intended to slow down a burgeoning, rapidly empowering competitor. China has been just killing it over the past several decades, across pretty much every metric of technological and economic advancement, and their national focus on artificial intelligence research and all the things that offshoot from that central R&D fixation has dramatically outpaced that of the U.S. and other nations. According to the most recent State of AI report, Chinese institutions churned out four and a half times as many AI-focused research papers as U.S. institutions since 2021, and they produce a lot more papers on this subject than the U.S., India, U.K., and Germany combined. They're also leading all other competitors when it comes to AI-based research with security implications, like research into AI-based surveillance, object detection, autonomy, and other such useful-for-better-military-and-spying-software-and-hardware technologies. Stuff that they can use to hack, that they can use on the battlefield to build autonomous robots to improve their satellites and missiles, all of those things. China has also been investing quite substantially in making their own homegrown chips, their own semiconductor industry. TSMC, which is Taiwan's semiconductor powerhouse, or rather a global semiconductor powerhouse at this point that happens to be based in Taiwan, is a prize that the Chinese government has long coveted because they basically produce the best chips, and in particular the best advanced chips on the planet. They do it at scale, too and they do it consistently. And this is part of why the rest of the world is so desperate to keep Taiwan out of China's hands, alongside all the other ideological and geopolitical reasons that would be bad for everyone except China if Taiwan was brought into the Chinese government and repression fold. TSMC works with China. Chinese companies are clients of theirs, but that lack of control over this vital chip resource is rankling for the Chinese government. So they've been investing heavily in making their own local industry for this, with several well-funded semiconductor designer and fabrication companies popping up over the last decade or so. But none of them have been able to replicate TSMC's success thus far. They've been limited to producing the best chips of the previous decade, which isn't nothing, as those chips are still useful for most common and consumer-grade use cases, and that's still not easy to do. But they're not the kind of chip that you need to build the best weapons or to do the most edgy, sophisticated research or to build the next generation artificial intelligences. China's still been moving ahead with this effort, though, full throttle. And part of the intention behind these new export rules is to deny China the ability to procure, again, like with Russia, via standard non-black market means, the highest-end chips available globally and to deny them the tools that they need, the fabrication and design hardware required to make their own chips via these companies that they've been funding, in addition to denying them the people with the knowledge necessary to operate these machines. This will, in theory at least, have the practical impact of making it harder for companies like TSMC to do business with China, while also making it more difficult for China to keep evolving those homegrown options. So it hits their short-term and their long-term plans, but probably the long-term even more so, because it slows the compounding investments they've been able to make and benefit from up till this point. Importantly, that diminished ability to build out their own homegrown semiconductor industry increases China's reliance on the rest of the world for these products. That means they are less likely 
theoretically at least, to destroy Taiwan, which some people worry they might do because that would kill off a key source of such products, and it makes it less likely that they can afford to just piss off the world, because that might then permanently impede their ability to get any decent chips for a good long while, which would spark a cascade of negative consequences for their research and development but also their core manufacturing activities, many of which rely upon the ability to acquire abundant high-end computer chips, which they then insert in the many electronic devices that they produce and then sell globally. One of the major themes of Chinese leader Xi's speeches at the party congress was that of self-reliance, the ability to operate independent of influence from outsiders, as that, he believes, will allow them to do whatever they want, even if the rest of the world doesn't approve, which is a pretty understandable stance for an authoritarian government with a more than questionable reputation on the human rights front to take. These new restrictions are expected to make that goal a lot less attainable, at least in the near future, and some semiconductor industry analysts have suggested it could push China's plan to build a homegrown, high-end, China-based advanced semiconductor industry backward as much as a generation, which is a very long time, especially if you think in terms of how fast these technologies move. A generation ago, people were programming computers the size of a room using punch cards, so forecast that same scale of development forward and you can imagine the impact of the delay that we might be talking about here. Despite this new set of rules seeming like a pretty major slam dunk in terms of non-military harm caused to a potential rival's capacity, though, there are some major caveats to this story that are worth being aware of. First is that, as I mentioned earlier, although this limits the above-board activities of the Chinese government and Chinese companies, they will still be able to acquire these sorts of things via other means, through other companies, through espionage, through hacking, and so on. They do this kind of acquisition all the time, already, so it's a fair bet that they will continue to putter along with relative ease using those same techniques and tools. There's also a chance that the U.S. government will not enforce these new rules that they've announced as fully as they otherwise might, which could also make this less of a damaging thing and more of an inconvenient thing for the Chinese government. So these rules are likely to slow them down, but it won't stop development completely, even in the worst-case scenario for China that the U.S. does assiduously enforce these rules, though development in that case would likely come at a greater cost and at times via technically illegal means. Second is that some analysts are suggesting this could serve as China's semiconductor Sputnik moment, referencing the famous historical shock that the United States felt when the Soviet Union surpassed them in the realm of space exploration. That stunning revelation led to a surge in support and resources for the U.S. space industry, along with some clever new approaches to things that eventually led to the U.S. winning the space race. And the concern here is that this kind of move might stimulate China's semiconductor field in a new way, which in turn will lead to creative solutions that ultimately lead to them winning this race in a similar fashion. And third is that the global semiconductor industry has been sounding alarm bells that we're reaching a point at which fundamental new designs will be necessary because we've essentially reached the end of Moore's Law, which is a rough observation about how rapidly semiconductors scale down in terms of size and cost while increasing in power. And that means we need to figure out a new holistic approach to building these things lest we enter a semiconductor winter during which nothing much changes, or at least not as rapidly as before. 
NVIDIA's CEO recently said, quote, the semiconductor industry is near the limit. It's near the limit in the sense that we can keep shrinking transistors, but we can't shrink atoms until we discover the same particle that Ant-Man discovered. Our transistors are going to find limits, and we're at atomic scales. And so this problem is a place where material science is really going to come in handy, end quote. Remember how I mentioned earlier that fundamental scientific research is part of what informs all other research and the conversion of that research into practical technology? This is something that supercomputers and AI software will help with, and it will need to if we're going to get past this developmental hump that is defined in part by how physics works. And this is another place where not having the best chips will hobble China, potentially, as they'll maybe arrive at solutions to bypassing those humps long after the rest of the world if these regulations stick. The semiconductor space, though, is already suffering, to some degree, from this developmental hump. And that hump is combining with the overproduction of chip-bearing products during the height of the pandemic, which has now resulted in substantially less demand for too many products on hand. And many of these companies' stocks have recently nosedived following the announcement of these new trade rules, as China is the international semiconductor industry's biggest client. So the loss of that client for many of these companies and the uncertainty surrounding what happens next alongside the predicted impending global economic recession has caused a lot of investors to pull their money from these companies for the time being, which has crushed global chip company valuations. So there would seem to be many upsides for the non-Chinese world here in terms of being able to run past an otherwise incredibly speedy and juiced up competitor. But in the short term, at least, some recalibration will probably be necessary. There's likely to be pain during the recalibration process, and we'll have to see whether or not these new restrictions bring significant unintended consequences alongside the potentially quite substantial and positive for everyone but China intended ones. I'd like to recommend today is called Curationism, How Curating Took Over the Art World and Everything Else by David Balzer. This was a fun book in that it was actually predicated on a study performed by the author, and that study underpins an assortment of other investigations into aspect of the world of curation, in particular how it was originally considered to be sort of an art world thing and one of the more mysterious, in some ways, or arcane aspects of the art world, in the sense that it determines so much of the shape of the art world and who becomes famous and what is worth what, and so on. But then it expanded outward, and it expanded outward in some ways because of the success and the desirability of that type of prestige, of being a curator, of having what certain people consider to be good taste, and being able to point at things and have those things become successful. Because of that desirability, it became a thing that became very widespread. And now everybody, to some degree, everybody who's using modern online tools at least, is some type of curator. And now there's a sort of jarring dissonance in this space because there still is that arcane high-end version of this. 
But at the same time, there are barbarians at the gate who are performing some of the same duties, arguably doing some of these duties better than those people in their ivory tower. But at the same time, it's not exactly clear where one of these types of curation begins and the other one ends, and what we should value and what aspects of this trade we should celebrate, and how we might even look at and perform the act of curation in the modern world. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Curationism by David Balzer. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of all of my projects at understandry.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook. Apparently now I am at Colin Wright on YouTube, now that they have usernames there. And I am at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.